Good day, dear listeners. Steve Prada here with the Management Blueprint Podcast. And today's guest is Jeff McDonald, the CEO and president of Jeff McDonald and Associates, a leading injury law firm in Richmond, Virginia, focused on protecting injury victims and their families from insurance companies. Great to have you on the show, Jeff. Welcome. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to have you. I haven't had anyone from an injury law firm, so I've got lots of questions for you today. But before we dive into the business as such, I'd like to learn a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey. How did you become from an attorney to actually an entrepreneur running a law firm, uh, quite a large law firm in Richmond? Well, um, that's a that's a pretty big pretty big question, and I'll try to answer it as, as succinctly as I can. When I graduated from law school, the economy was not that great. Today, the economy is just booming for lawyers. So if you have any kids or anybody listening, they're thinking about going to law school, please tell them to go to law school because honestly, there just there really aren't enough attorneys. People find that shocking because for so many years they've been hearing, oh, there are too many lawyers. You can't swing a cat without without hitting a lawyer. But the truth is, about 2008, 2009, people stopped going, stopped going to law school. And so enrollment is probably as low as it's been in the 1970s. Of course, our population is much, is much bigger. And so now, you know, the, the few law school graduates that there, there are, particularly the ones who want to be litigators, I mean, we're, we're, fighting, we're fighting over them. But back to the original question, when I graduated from law school in 1989, the economy wasn't that great. Uh, there was an old adage that the A students become law professors, the B students become judges, and the C students become millionaire trial attorneys. And that's basically true, although that's all pretty much in the context of working for other people. And I never had an interest in working for someone else. I think most entrepreneurs, they're just different. And not everybody can be an entrepreneur. I've, I've heard entrepreneurs compared to uh, having the same mindset as a juvenile delinquent. You know, a juvenile delinquent <laughs> wakes up and says, man, this world is messed up. I'm not playing by these rules. And that's how most entrepreneurs are. And I, I was the same way. My, my heroes, and I always love to read biographies, people like Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Abraham Lincoln, going way back. I mean, they didn't work for anybody. They just hung a shingle. And, and all of them, something they have in common is they, they just weren't happy with the status quo. You know, most, most of those folks and most entrepreneurial lawyers you know, we, we went to law school because we viewed the law a little bit differently. We saw it as a vehicle for positive change in society. Uh, we, didn't, we did not go to law school to keep the world safe for corporate America. And so there's a difference. And so most entrepreneur, entrepreneurial lawyers, you know, they went to law school because they wanted to change things. They wanted to be a, they wanted to be a force for good. And the question is, how, how do you do that? Because you don't, you don't know how to practice law because they don't teach you how to practice law in law school. They teach you about the law, but you don't learn anything at all about the practice. And so the first thing I did was I hung a shingle and it was in the basement of my apartment. And my first desk was a wooden door nailed to two sawhorses and an old fashioned typewriter with a big bottle of whiteout. And that's how I started practicing law. And if you had a legal problem, I could help you. And so I tried to teach myself the practice of law. I was blessed with some, some, some very, very good and understanding mentors uh, who helped me along the way. 
but probably after about 10 years of practicing law, it became apparent that uh, I wasn't a very good businessman. And so I hired a business coach and the business coach said, Jeff, uh, you know, you have to start thinking more like a businessman and less like a lawyer. And of course I said, well, what, what do you mean by that? And he said, you have to hire a COO to run the place uh, and you need to take yourself out of operations and you need to hire some young attorneys and you need to take yourself out of production and hire, hire them. And of course, my response was what any, any lawyers would be is like, I'm the only one who knows how to run this place. And so why should I hire somebody else? And why should I hire young attorneys when I can do it better? And he just stayed on me and said, Jeff, you'd be surprised. There are actually people who, who are good at running things and they might even be better than you. And there might actually be young attorneys who are better at this than you are. And so he, he got me to trust the process. And it was probably about 10 years of pra into practicing law uh, that I really started thinking more like a business person and more like an entrepreneur. And, okay. and what, what, what he told me and what I believe is, is true, and I'm, I'm sure you've probably found this as well, is that it's an entirely different skill set involved in gro building, growing a business than running a business. And so I started doing that. So really, while I've been in, while I've been in business for 30 years, uh, I've only been been running running my law firm as a professional law firm, an entrepreneurial law firm for the past 20 years. Got it. So some so a couple of things that you said, which really uh, struck a chord with me. One, one is the, you talked about this door desk that you had, which is actually very entrepreneurial. So if, mm -hmm. uh, I just read a book about Amazon and they had door desks. This is how they started. <laughs> and they probably got the idea from you because they started there around 1996. Mm -hmm. And they, it was kind of a, a symbol of, of frugality. So they had a door desk for everyone for, for a few years in the beginning. Um, the other thing you talked about is how entrepreneurs are like juvenile delinquent, delinquents in society, which I agree with. And in fact, there is research to say that it's only about 1% of the population which is entrepreneurial. And it's like a yeast in, a, in, a, in, a, in bread, you know, it, in a small quantity, it really helps the bread grow and great. But if you put too much in it, then it spoils the bread. It's really good for society not to have more than 1% of entrepreneurs. And maybe the problems in America, you have a lot of immigrant entrepreneurs. You actually have a little bit more than 1%. And maybe that creates some chaos sometimes here. Yeah. The other thing you mentioned was that that it's, it's different to be an entrepreneur than to run a business. And in fact, maybe it's 1% of the population that's true entrepreneur, but people who can actually run businesses, it's a lot fewer than the number of entrepreneurs. It's easy to come up with big, big dreams, but to execute and to make it happen, it's much harder. So to find a great CEO is, is really a, a huge, a giant step toward building, building a company. I could not agree more with you. So, okay, so let's talk a little bit about building your company and your CEO was definitely a big step. What I'm always looking for in this podcast is what I call management blueprints. So frameworks that people used to build their business, something that they picked up from a book or they learned some, somewhere in a seminar or they figured it out. But do you have a framework or maybe multiple frameworks that you have applied to build uh, uh, Jeff McDonald and Associates? Yes, absolutely. And of course, 
your, your framework for growing your business and running your business, it's going to be different when you start versus when you're in, in your adolescent stage or a more mature stage. So obviously, when you start your business, uh, your business model is going to be focused more on marketing because you don't have any clients. And so you're going to be thinking about, okay, how, how can I eat this week? Uh, how many clients can I get? And so I, I was very blessed. I was able to put my hands on a book called How to Start Your Own Law Firm 101. Mm -hmm. And that was just a genius book. I, I don't know who wrote it. I, I really wish I still had had the copy. But I I followed that that book to a T. And one of the things that it said was have a five pronged marketing strategy. Mm -hmm. In other words, find five different places uh, or sources of business. And so, of course, this being, you know, 1990, you know, I looked to the yellow pages. Uh, I looked to other attorneys, mm -hmm. looked to doctors because doctors quite often treated uh, injury victims. I looked at uh, representing labor unions because, you know, they represented lots of blue collar workers who, who might need the, the services of an attorney if something, ha if something happened to them. And so I, I came up with you know, five different things. Obviously today, that's just marketing is just one piece of running your business. You know, it might be just 20% 20 20 of it. And so today, what I try to do is R&D, research and development or rip off and duplicate. There are a lot of super, super smart entrepreneurs out there, great mentors, world-class coaches. And, you know, I would, I'd, I would say that probably the most meaningful book that I read on how to, how to run an entrepreneurial firm and grow it would be uh, Vern Harnish's The Rockefeller Habits. Mm -hmm. He had a very simple, straightforward one page strategic plan. And we probably used that blueprint for about 10 years. The problem that we encountered was the problem that a lot of my peers had was that, you know, they focused primarily on quarterly strategic planning sessions and monthly follow-ups. And what I found in my business is that you really can get off track uh, from quarter to quarter. And honestly, even, even month to month, and things start falling off the calendar. And if you miss a monthly, monthly meeting, it's two months since you've met. And a, a gentleman named Gino Wickman, uh, I think he's from Detroit, he had the same problem. And he, he wrote a book about you know, how to get back on track. And he was a big fan of Vern Harnish's. And he talks about Vern in his book and gives ample credit to him. But you know, people were just getting off track. And so he, he came up with a, with a system entrepreneurial operating system, EOS. And he writes about it in his book called Traction. And what they believe in is, you know, weekly meetings, no more than 50, 55 minutes tops uh, for six weeks. And then you take a two week break. Um, obviously, you, you begin the year with, you know, with setting, setting goals. I think he calls them, calls them rocks. And you just make sure that everybody's on track. Uh, since, since we started having traction meetings about three years ago, you, you know, a, a book came out uh, called Measure What Matters by John Doerr. Mm -hmm. And it just blew my mind. I, I remember where I was uh, when it, it was given to me. It was given to me by, I'm not going to say, say the name of a company, but a, a friend of mine who is a project manager for a company said, 
his supervisor gave it to him and said, hey, read this. We're going to start using it. And then he never heard about it again. And I could tell by looking at it that the, the seal hadn't even been cracked. I mean, nobody had opened that book. Mm-hmm. And so he gave it to me. And, you know, I took a week off and it was during a conference. And in the afternoons, we were free. And I just sat on the beach and I, and I read that book. And what it contains is it's, it's the, the blueprint for Google. They use a system, a goal setting implementation system called OKRs which stands for objectives and key results. And in the back of the books in the appendix, they actually have the memos and letters that Google used to roll this system out to their people. And I I think most people think that companies like Oracle, and and I believe this started with Larry Page, who I I believe was at Oracle, and he's the one who who created these, and John Doerr worked there, and and then he actually bought in early at Google, I think you know, he bought maybe you know like 17% or something like that when they were still working in somebody's in somebody's garage. But what blows me away is that most people think that companies like Google and Oracle they they were just in the right place at the right time, and you, you know they just it just happened. You know they they were in Silicon Valley and, and everything came together for them. But the truth is they had a plan. Well, actually, the truth is they didn't have a plan until John Doerr showed up and he's talking to the founders of Google, Sergey and his partner. And they're like, you know, he's like, Hey, we need a plan. If I'm going to invest all this money, which wasn't really in the scheme of things, a huge amount, but it was all the money he had at the time. He said, I've got skin in the game. I think we should use this. Larry Page came or Andy Grove or Larry Page. I can't remember. Andy Grove. It was Andy Grove. Andy Grove. Yes. Yes. And he he borrowed it. Peter Drucker who came up with the, management by objectives and he refined yes. it to objectives and key results. So, so it's, it's, it's great. I just want to reflect on some of the things you said. So, so definitely uh, I agree that Ver Harnish was the first one who actually created tools that uh, like the one page strategic plan and uh, Gino was actually working for Vern initially. He was one of his coaches and okay. then he broke out and he said, I can simplify this thing into EOS. And, but, but actually uh, I mean, Vern also had the one, the weekly meeting, weekly tactical meeting. And in fact, Vern was upset with Gino. I talked to him and he told me that he actually was upset that Gino dropped the daily huddle or the daily, yeah, the daily huddle, the daily meeting, yeah. and just had the weekly meeting because yes, uh, people get off track. So uh, yes, in, in a month you can definitely get off track, but even, even during the week you can get off track. So uh, that's tremendous. So you've definitely been out there and you've been trying multiple systems, uh, Rockefeller Habits, uh, Traction, uh, OKRs. So, so let me ask you about this. I mean, I, I read on your website, you talk about a results-only work environment. I'm, yes. I'm curious about what do you mean by that? What's a results-only work environment? What kind of an other alternative work environment could there be? Yeah, so it's, it's called, we call it a row, uh, results-only work environment. And so what that means is that if, if you work here, uh, you have goals. Uh, we, we believe that you will miss 100% of the goals that you don't have. And so we believe that it's important for everybody to have goals, even if you're you know, the front office manager or the receptionist, it's one ring, not two. And our paralegals, who we call case managers, uh, they have a set of goals and we attorneys as well. And we, we track them on dashboards. And so teamwork is one of our 
goals. And you know, when you work together as a team, you could always do more together than you can than you can by yourself. But we're not like a little league baseball team. We're we're really more like an we like to think of ourselves as an all pro football team with you're always going to have you know, a young rookie nipping at your heels. And so you have to stay sharp. And so what I found is that, you know, most people, you know, they, they like having goals. They like being motivated. And, you, you know, you, you're, you're always going to have, have problems when you measure people's effectiveness. I think there's something you're, you're aware of called Goodhart's Law, which stands for the proposition that, that any, any metric that you use to measure somebody if, somebody's effectiveness becomes meaning, meaningless over time because they find a way to game the system. And so probably about every five years, you need to, you need to throw that out. I, I think there's an, there's, there's an old, old saying that says, when a measure becomes a target, the measure becomes worthless. And so you know, what we're finding is that, yeah, there are people who will game the system. And so you have to shift your focus to other metrics. And so all of our, all of our metrics are designed to help our clients have a good result uh, at the end of the day. And so that's something that doesn't lie. Unfortunately, uh, you know, if you do X, X and Y, you're gonna, get, you're gonna get Z, not part of the time, 100% of the time. And in our business, if the cases aren't being closed and the money's not coming out of the other end for the client, then, then you're probably not doing A or B. And so, you know, we, we take this, we take this very seriously and, you know, in our business, it, we're kind of like Robin Hood, you know, we take from the rich and give to the poor, but we take very, very good care of our married men and women. And so everybody, everybody knows that if you work here, you, you know, there's going to be expectations for your performance. Mm-hmm. So what, what kind of measures, I mean, maybe if, if that's not confidential you can maybe share a couple of them, what kind of metrics do you have where you can measure people on a weekly basis in in an injury law firm how can you measure effectiveness and productivity sure i'm i'm happy to talk about it i mean one one of the things what we call a core focus and the core focus is different from a core value a core focus is what separates us from the other guys and one of our core focuses that we think we do better than other people is we build value and you you essentially have four pillars in building value. And the first pillar, believe it or not, is client contact, communication. So you want your attorneys to talk to your clients. You want your case managers to talk to your clients. And you know, we ask our attorneys and case managers to proactively call the clients at least every 30 days. And so we have dashboards and we'd like them to keep their dashboards at 80%. And when they're doing that, clients tend to be happy they're well informed about their case and things don't fall through the cracks. The second thing we ask them to do, and it's also on their dashboard is, you know, we expect them to do file reviews once a month. So mm-hmm. a file review in, in this context, in our office is the attorney sits down once a month with their case manager or, we, or paralegal and they go over the case. And so there's a meeting of the minds. Everybody knows exactly what the status is. And so I would say that those two things, which comprise the first first pillar of building value in our business, they probably would apply to pretty much any service industry. You know, whether you're selling a, a, account, you're an accounting firm or some other type of firm, uh, client contact is is a big deal. It's a big deal for us because the number one knock on attorneys is they don't call you back, 
And the number one reason for bar complaints is that my attorney won't call me back. So that's, that's the first thing we do. The second thing we do that I think may apply to all businesses and not just law firms is we focus on something called the Pareto principle. Mm -hmm. And so we try to identify the top 20% of cases in our office that result in 80% of our income. I thought probably for about 20 years, Steve, that speed equals profitability. And that's only half true. Speed equals profitability on the smaller cases that tend to be your loss leaders. You want to move them as quickly as you can and get them through the office. But the bigger cases, the more valuable cases, speed's not so important. You want to, you want to build value on those cases. And so there are several, several things that we can do to build value on the cases. Um, and those are things that we measure, we measure as well. The other two pillars of building value for our clients probably don't have as much application outside of the practice of law. But the third one is you need to make sure that your client does what the doctor tells him to do. If the doctor says, hey, you need shoulder surgery and you say you don't want it, the value of your case just went out the window because you're not a good patient. You're not doing what the doctor says. And mm -hmm. so we try to make sure they get all the medical treatment they need uh, before their case is over. And the fourth pillar of building value in a, in a case in a law firm is litigation. You have to be prepared to hold the insurance company's feet to the fire. And so that means that if they're not going to negotiate in good faith, if they're not going to put a fair offer on the table, you have to be willing to file suit. We have found that the, the, the simple act of filing a lawsuit against an insurance company it gets their attention and right off the bat, it results in an increase of about 24% from the last offer. And then if you go to, go to court and you go before a jury, uh, you, could get much, you can get much more than that. But without, without the threat of litigation, uh, the insurance companies aren't gonna, they're not gonna take your case seriously. Well, I can, I can see that. I can see that. that's very interesting. So you also talk about striving to be servants. Uh, what do you mean by by that by that term? Well, that's that's a good that's a great question, and it it, it really it really goes to the heart of who we are and, and why we do what we do. I mean, our you know our mission is to protect the rights of injury victims and their families. One of our one of our core values is to to help other people or, or service. And in order to be ser servant oriented, you know you, you you have to be humble. And so we, there's a concept. Maybe you've heard of it. It's just, it's called servant leadership mm -hmm. and it, you know, it involves in, inside the law firm, removing obstacles from your, in your people's way, you hire good people, you train them and you get out of their way. You, you let them do your job, do their job. You meet with them, you meet with all your direct reports. And so I, I meet with my, my managers once a month. I meet with all our attorneys once a month and mostly you know, we meet to see where they are, but also to encourage them. Uh, we, we have a policy here at Jeff McDonald Donald and Associates. You've probably heard part of this. Uh, you know, never criticize in public. Well, guess what? We don't, we, don't, we don't criticize in private either. What we talk about, what we talk about are, you know, strengths and opportunities. And quite often when something goes south, it's not, it's not a bad thing. You know, it's a growth opportunity. When we go to court, and the jury doesn't see the case our way or we get a bad result, you know, we just, you know, we believe it's justice denied. You know, we appeal it, we fight harder, or we just move on to the next one. But servant, servant leadership is something that, 
that you know, we, we, we do our best to practice here. Um, I have a COO who was in the Marine Corps for 23 years. And believe it or not, uh, he's a proponent of servant leadership as well. And so we, we, you know, we really are on the same page with regard to that. But service is something that I think separates us from, from other law firms. Uh, we, believe in, we, we, we believe in staying active in the community. Uh, we don't like the phrase, oh, we give back to the community because it sounds like you went somewhere, you left. Well, we've never gone anywhere. We've always been here. We've always been embedded in the community. We have a nonprofit partner of the month. So we raise money for a different nonprofit every single month. Quite often these, these nonprofit opportunities enable us to get out of the office. And la last month we did Habitat for Humanity. And so half of our firm was out there with, you know, with a hammer and nails. And so we get, we get, to, do, we get to do things like that. We also give one, one day of PTO for them to work on a non nonprofit or, or, or to volunteer for a charity that's near and dear to their hearts. And so, you know, we, we talk about it uh, and we also do it. We put our money where our mouth is. That's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, I've got a couple of questions. It's kind of a different topic. You talked about last time when we, when we spoke about your 20 mile march this concept of you know regularly hitting your strides as opposed to doing big campaigns and you know, without going into the details of where this comes from this this whole concept of the family march is basically uh but but the point is if you can hit your stride on a regular basis you're going to grow and your 20 mile march you, you came up with a 20 mile march which few companies actually do uh, can you tell tell us a little bit about what it is and how did you stumble upon it well, again, it's, it's, it's a concept that I learned about through one of Jim Collins' books. And, you know, he was talking about the race to the South Pole between a Norwegian-led team and a British-led team. And the Norwegian team, they had this idea that, hey, no matter what, we're going to do 20 miles a day. If weather's good, we might be able to get 50, but we're only going to do 20. And when the weather's bad... In, you know, we're going to still do 20. We're just going to fight through the adversity. The other team, uh, you know, they, when the weather was nice, you know, they went, you know, 40, 50, 55, 60 miles in a day. Uh, and when the weather was bad, they just hold up until the, until the, you know, the good weather came back. And what happened was, you know, you know, the rest of the story, the Norwegian team beat the British team by about 34 days to the South pole. And, before they, you know, they, on their way back, they, the British team froze to death. And so, so how do, what, what does that have to do with the practice of law or running a business? It means that uh, when you have a good year, you don't go crazy. Uh, you know, a lot of law firms flame out because they have a good year and they, they increase their marketing budget by threefold or fourfold. And then all these cases come in, but they don't have the, the back office or the, the operational legs under them to handle the cases and then chaos ensues and it could really really cripple a law firm and so you know what we try to do is you know when in good you know whether times are good or times are bad you know we try to we try to stick to our plan and so we have you know we have marketing goals we keep our marketing budget even during covid we did something a little bit controversial uh you know we continued marketing even though people weren't driving a lot of people weren't working uh, we didn't cut our marketing budget. Our idea was that we would, 
you know, we would sort of leapfrog our competitors, all of whom slashed their budgets during, during COVID for about three months. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I think in the long run, it helped us build brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then you have all the real estate and you're the only one in the game in town and definitely people, uh, it will call people's attention. You also mentioned that you, you figured out that you, you have to hire one attorney every quarter in order to have this healthy, uh, steady growth. Uh, that's, that's a very good, uh, I think it's a very good way to articulate how you're going to get on your 20 mile march. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Another question I'd like to ask you, another strategic question is, can you distill your strategy down to a single phrase? And a couple <laughs> of examples here is, you know, Southwest Airlines, they made their fame by keeping planes in the air longer, having quicker turnaround times. Their strategy is wheels up. So everyone focuses on, okay, what do we do to keep the planes in the air? How do we turn things around? No food service and so on. Starbucks, they want to be the third place. So it's between the home and the office, the third place. So everything is subordinate to this concept, uh, the ambience, the, the food, the, the baristas, uh, try to keep customers happy there. IKEA, flat pack. It's all about being able to package the furniture into uh, a small place where it's easy. You can put it in the wood, you can uh, keep it in the warehouse and you can have a much bigger selection. So is there a way for you to kind of synthesize your strategy into a single phrase? That's a great question. And we do not have a, a simple phrase to capture our strategy other than, you know, we believe that, you know, life and business, you know, it's, there, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And the turtle always wins. And that's not very sexy, but I, but I believe it's true. Um, it's probably not as inspirational as, as some of those. We have terms that we use, phrases that we use in here that, you know, when we're going on all cylinders, when we're following our strategic plan, when it's being executed and implemented accordingly, everything just runs so smooth. I mean, it's almost like going deer hunting with Uzis. It's like the other guys don't stand a chance. Uh, and, and as far as you know, one, one word that sums us up, we probably need to work on that. And so you've really given me something to think about today. Uh, I know personally, you know, I've, I've always liked the idea that, that uh, I'm third or we're third. And it, it may not translate very well into business, but it certainly does in my personal life. And I, I think it does, it does have some relevancy to work. And the concept of I'm third is, or we're third, is that you know, first God, then others, and then us, you know, we're third, you know, we're here to serve other people. And, you know, whether you believe in God, or higher power, or whatever you want to call it, you know, I still think that, you know, if we, if we understand where we are in relationship to the universe, you know, life is pretty good. That's great. That's a great analogy. And thanks for sharing that. And Great information today about the 20 mile march, the rocks, uh, the OKR, the one page strategic plan and, and how you keep, uh, you know, you keep your uh, turtle tactic to keep <laughs> going forward and, and out, uh, outleap the, the rabbits. That's, that's pretty cool. 
so if our listeners would like to learn more about um, Jeff McDonald and Associates, your, your firm, your services, or, or yourself, then where would you direct them? Well, you know, our website's pretty easy. It's www.mcdonaldinjurylaw.com. And our phone number is even easier than that. It's 804-888-8888. Or if you're in the Roanoke Valley, 434-222-2222. So it's very easy to get in touch with us. Wow. that's And we, that's ha and we have you know, several hundred blogs on our website. So just feel free to check it out. That's fantastic. So definitely... Uh, mcdonaldandassociates.com is the website? Yes, mcdonaldinjurylaw.com. mcdonaldinjurylaw.com. So yes. please uh, check it out. Also, Jeff uh, is on LinkedIn, so you can connect with him there as well. Uh, so CEO and President of Jeff McDonald and Associates, Jeff McDonald, thanks for coming on the show. And for, to our listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation, Please uh, don't forget to rate and review us on, uh, on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on YouTube, and stay tuned because next week I'll have another exciting entrepreneur come on the show and sh share their story. Have a great uh, day and great week. Uh, thank you. Thank okay. you, Jack. Thank you, Steve. I enjoyed it.